0: Beloved congregation, in a few weeks from now, the Lord willing, we hope once again to commemorate the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on the cross. What a terrible event that was. What pain and suffering and humiliation our Lord suffered as he made his way to the cross, but also and especially as he hung on. The cross. It was greater than you and I can possibly imagine. And while there is a place for reflecting on the sufferings of the Lord, our purpose this morning is to ask ourselves the question what effect do these sufferings have on you and on me personally? In other words, how do you respond, how do you react when you think of the Lord Jesus Christ hanging on the cross, dying and bleeding for sinners? Most of us here have heard these things many, many times. From the time that we were children. And the danger is is that sometimes we can become so used to hearing certain truths, even certain uh, things about the suffering and death of Christ, that it it really doesn't faze us anymore. And we can even allow it sometimes to go in one ear and out the other. It has no effect on us. It doesn't soften us. It doesn't... Change us. But as we hope to see this morning, when the Lord is at work in our hearts by His Holy Spirit, then whether we have heard these things once or a thousand times, we will be deeply affected. We will be convicted. And we will even mourn. We read this morning from Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah 12 marks the beginning of the second oracle or prophecy in the book of Zechariah. The first oracle is recorded in chapters 9 through 11. And if you were paying close attention as we were reading this chapter, you will notice that it can be neatly divided into two parts. So the first part, of this chapter, Zechariah describes what God will do for his people. Figuratively represented here by Jerusalem and the tribe of Judah. And what will he do for them? He will protect them from their enemies. He will bless them. He will prosper them. And he will destroy all those who come against them. But then in verse 10... A shift occurs. And starting in verse 10 to the end of the chapter, Zechariah describes not what God will do for his people, but rather what God will do in his people. And what will he do in them? He will cause them to look upon him whom they have pierced. And when they look, they will Mourn, And I hope and pray, congregation, that this will be the effect of the preaching of the Word of God on your heart and on my heart this morning, that as we look upon him whom we have pierced, that we may mourn. With the help of the Lord, we want to look at these verses under the theme, Mourning for the Pierced One. And we'll consider, first of all, the uncommon intensity of this morning. Secondly, the divine source of this morning. And then thirdly, the pitiable object of this morning. Mourning for the pierced one. The uncommon intensity, the divine source, and the pitiable object. As I said already the first half of our text chapter, Zechariah proclaims a wonderful and comforting message to the people of God. It's a message of victory. God would defend and he would protect his people against the onslaught, against the attacks of the enemy all around. Now one might think that upon hearing such a glad message that the people of Jerusalem and Judah would rejoice and would celebrate. But alas, this is not the case. For as we read further in our text chapter, when we come to verse 10, we find that rather than rejoice, rather than celebrate, the people of Judah and Jerusalem will mourn. And this mourning would be very great. To communicate that, Zechariah makes two comparisons in our text. First of all, he compares their mourning to parents' Mourning the death of a child. Look at what he writes in verse 10. They will mourn as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. There is no greater sorrow than the sorrow of a parent whose child has been taken away by death, especially when the child dies suddenly and unexpectedly and at a very young age. I will never forget the day that I received the news that our dear daughter Catherine had died. It was like a tsunami. It was like a huge wave that just came crashing down upon me and upon my family. And it's like it came out of nowhere. Just when you least expect it, when everything seems to be going so well and you're out enjoying the day, suddenly everyone is plunged into the depths of extreme sorrow and despair. Thankfully, by God's grace, the pain of the loss, even of a child, does dissipate over time. At least it becomes easier to bear, but it never goes away. It's always there. It leaves a scar that never, ever heals. This is the grief that the people of God will experience When they look on him whom they have pierced, it will be like the grief of parents who lose a child. But that is not all because Zachariah says here that their grief will be like the grief of parents who lose an only child. It's one thing to lose one of several children. It's quite another to lose an only child and especially, as Zechariah says here, when that child is your firstborn child. Now, that doesn't mean as much to us today because the firstborn child doesn't have the status and the importance that it once did, but it did mean a lot to people living in the Old Testament, and that's because it was the sons who inherited the property. It was the sons who carried on the family name. To lose a firstborn son, especially if it's your only son, meant the end. The end of your family line. It was the worst possible scenario. And this only adds to the grief of parents who lose a child in Old Testament times. It was a horrible thing. And Zechariah says, this is what the grief of the people of Judah and Jerusalem will be like when they look upon him whom they have pierced. But then Zechariah draws a second comparison in our text. He compares the mourning of the people to the national mourning of Israel upon the death of King Josiah. We read about that in 2 Chronicles 35 The verses 20 to 27, in 609 BC, King Josiah, the king of Judah, went out to battle against King Necho of Egypt in the valley of Megiddo. And during this battle, Josiah was struck by an arrow, and his servants had to carry him back to Jerusalem, where eventually he died of his injuries. Now, for the believing remnant in Judah, the death of Josiah the king was an absolute disaster. And that's because Josiah was a godly king. He did away with all of the idols in the land. He cleansed the temple and reinstituted the worship of God in the temple. He did so much good for the cause of God and the people of God. And in fact, he was the last godly king to reign in Judah. The kings who came after him, they were idol worshippers like their forefathers. And because of their refusal to repent of their idolatry, God made good on his word. And he sent the Babylonians and he carried them away captive to Babylon where they remained for some 70 years. And so when Josiah died, there was a great national mourning among the people of Judah. And it was led by the prophet Jeremiah himself. In fact, it became a custom in those days to set aside a day of mourning to commemorate the death of King Josiah. And the Lord is saying here, this is how deeply, this is how intensely the people of God will mourn when they look upon Him whom they have pierced. They will mourn as a parent mourns For as only son and as the people of Israel mourned the death of Josiah, the king, in the plain of Megiddo. And what is more, he says here, that everyone will mourn. Look at verses 12 to 14. The land, and that means every person in the land, shall mourn every family apart, the family Of the house of David apart and their wives apart. The family of the house of Nathan apart and their wives apart. The family of the house of Levi apart and their wives apart. The family of Shimei apart and their wives apart. All the families that remain. Every family apart and their wives apart. We learn here that, that this mourning of the people will not just be outward. The people will not just put on a show of mourning to attract attention to themselves, to show how pious and how religious they are. They won't be like the hypocrites, as Jesus later said, who love to stand at the street corners and the synagogues to be seen by men. No, these people will be so ashamed that they will creep away on their own to be alone with God as they pour out their hearts before God. Even the wives will mourn separately from their husbands, everyone standing before God individually as they think about their guilt in piercing the one, the Son of God. And they will mourn, Zechariah says, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The royal family will mourn. The family of the house of David, specified here, as well as the family of his lesser-known descendant, Nathan. The priestly families will mourn. The family of the house of Levi, as well as the family of his almost unknown grandson, Shimei. All the other families will mourn. The entire nation will mourn. Men, women, children. They will mourn when they look upon him whom they have pierced. You say, what kind of mourning is this? Well, this is not the mourning of a Judas Iscariot who remember when he betrayed the Lord Jesus he was so filled with pangs of conscience that he went back to the temple and threw the 30 pieces of silver on the floor and went out and hanged himself. That kind of mourning was mere regret, but this mourning is more than just regret. The kind of mourning that's being described here is what the Apostle Paul would later call a sorrow leading to repentance, a godly sorrow, a God-produced sorrow. It's a sorrow of heart. There's a sorrow that proceeds from the very depths of a man's soul. The people in our text are convicted by their sins and they sorrow that they have sinned against God. By piercing Him. And they understand that because of their actions, they deserve the wrath and the condemnation of God. And because of this, they mourn and this mourning results in a fundamental change within them, in their attitude, and in their actions. Oh, congregation, I wonder if you know something of this kind of mourning. We don't always sorrow over our sins to the same degree. I'm well aware of that. There are people who are just more naturally emotional than other people, and when they think about their sins and they talk about their sins, they literally cry actual tears. The tears come streaming down their faces. I have met people like that. That's a beautiful thing to see, although tears don't say everything. We don't all have to shed physical tears, but we all need to know something of this morning that's described here. In our text, because this mourning is a mark of a true believer. A true believer is somebody who mourns. I know that's countercultural today. Today, we're told in the church that the true believer is always happy, he's always victorious, he's always rejoicing. And of course, there's truth to that. And the Christian is somebody who is glad and who is joyful in the Lord and who praises the Lord. But with that joy, with that rejoicing, there's also a mourning. A mourning over sin and a mourning over one's own sin and the sins of others. He knows that sin is an abomination to God. It grieves God, provokes Him to wrath. And so even as he rejoices in the Lord, he mourns. You know something of that. As I'm describing what's happening to the people of Judah, can you say this morning, I know, I know this. This resonates. I know what the pastor's talking about. I know what Zechariah is describing here, at least to some extent. You say, well, how how can we become like this? What is it that produces this mourning This sorrow, this godly sorrow leading to repentance. Well, let me just say this kind of sorrow does not come naturally. This is not a sorrow that we produce ourselves. This is a sorrow that is worked in the heart by God. And that brings me to my second point, the divine source of this sorrow. I said this sorrow has its source in God. Look at what Zechariah writes. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Now I'm not sure which exact uh, version of the New King James you have in front of you, because there are some slight differences between, depending on who the publisher is. But, but in the version that I used in preparing the sermon, the word "spirit" is capitalized. Is it capitalized in your Bible? Yeah, okay, Now, what's happening here is that the, the translators of the, of the New King James uh, are ter- interpreting this to be a reference to the Holy Spirit. In the Hebrew, there are no capital letters. And so when the translators translated this verse, they decided to capitalize the word Spirit because they see this as a reference to the Holy Spirit. Now, this isn't necessarily true because the word Spirit with a small s... Could simply refer to an attitude or a disposition in these people, but but in this case, I believe the translators of the new King James are correct. This is likely a reference to the Holy Spirit, and I say that because of what this spirit does you 'll notice how the spirit is called the spirit of grace. Now, I want to quote a commentator John Gill. Uh, he puts it so beautifully. He explains what this means. He says this, He has called the Spirit of grace not merely because He is gracious and is of grace given to them, but because He is the author of all grace in them. He is the author of gracious convictions and spiritual illuminations of quickening, regenerating, converting, and sanctifying grace, and of all particular graces such as faith and hope and love and fear and repentance and humility, joy, peace, meekness, patience, long-suffering, self-denial, as well as because he is the revealer, applier and witnesser of all the blessings of grace unto them. No wonder he's called the spirit of grace. But he's also called the spirit of supplication. And again, I quote I quote John Gill. He says he's called the spirit of supplication because... He shows them their wants and stirs them up to pray. That's what supplication means. It's talking about prayer here. He enlarges their hearts and supplies them with arguments and puts words into their mouths. He gives faith and fervency and freedom and encourages them to come to God as their Father and makes intercession for them according to the will of God. It's the Spirit of grace. And of supplication, those two things go together. Before there will be supplications, there must be grace. And where there is grace, there will be supplications. And this is the spirit that God will pour out on his people. Yes, he will pour him out. That's the word that's used in our text. He will pour out. His spirit of grace and supplication. He's just not going to sprinkle it a little bit here and there, a little dab here, a little dab there, a little teaspoonful here, a little teaspoonful there. No, he's going to pour them out as God does with all of his great blessings and benefits. He pours them out upon his people, and the spirit of grace and supplication is no exception to this. And when God pours out his spirit of grace, and supplication upon his people, then something amazing is going to happen. Zechariah says, they will look on him whom they pierced, and they will mourn. Now what does that mean, to look upon him whom they have pierced? We'll see in a moment, this is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross but to look upon him that means they will look upon him with the eye of faith they will come to trust in him as the only hope and ground of their salvation they will look away from themselves and they will come to look to Christ and to say he is everything that I need there's nothing in myself There's nothing in myself that can commend me before God, let alone satisfy the wrath of God against my sin. Everything I need is in Him. And they come to look to Him and embrace Him and trust in Him. Like the people in the wilderness, children remember the story of those fiery serpents. That's the King James, the poisonous snakes. This plague of poisonous snakes that God sent in the camp because they rebelled against him. And all the people were being bitten by these these terrible snakes. And and they cried out to Moses. And they said, go to the Lord and and, and ask him to forgive us our sins. And, And Moses goes to the Lord and the Lord says, Moses, this is what I want you to do. I want you to make a serpent of brass. And I want you to put it on a pole. And I want you to go to the camp of the Israelites. And anyone who looks upon the serpent of brass, he shall be healed. And that's exactly what happened. And all these people were dying in their tents and on the ground. And if they just looked at that brazen serpent with the eye of faith, they would be healed. That's the idea here. They will look upon him whom they have pierced. They will look upon him with the eye of faith. And when they look upon him, they will mourn. Now, that order is very important. First they will look, and then they will mourn. And I say this is important because... There have been people, also in Reformed churches, who have taught and indeed still do teach that mourning over sin, conviction of sin, is a prerequisite for coming to Christ. Maybe you've heard of this idea. This idea that first you must experience a certain measure of conviction of sin before you come to Christ. And if you don't have that certain measure of conviction of sin, if the Lord hasn't deeply taught you about yourself and about your need, you may not come to Christ. And if you come to Christ as you are, without that measure of conviction of sin, you are in danger of stealing something that doesn't belong to you. You are stealing Christ. This is the language that's used. It's not what our text says. Our text says, on the contrary, that it's in the way of looking to Him whom they have pierced, that then men will Mourn. Listen to what Spurgeon says on this. He says, A great mistake is very common among all classes of men. It is currently believed that we are first of all to mourn for our sins and then to look by faith to our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us be quite clear on this point. Then to start with that it is not mourning for sin which causes or prepares the way for our looking to Christ But it is our looking to Jesus which makes us weep and mourn for Him and works in us the sweet bitterness of true repentance. The point is, congregation, it is true, of course, that no man will come to Christ unless he first of all knows something and experiences something of his need for Christ. That is true. But there are no conditions to be met, no qualifications to be satisfied before we come to Him. The call of the Gospel is believe. Come to Christ as you are. Whether that is with this amount of conviction of sin or this amount of conviction of sin, it doesn't matter. You come to Christ because in Him is to be found salvation. And it's as we look to Christ, as we behold him whom we have pierced, that then we will mourn, because then we will understand what it cost him to satisfy the wrath of God against sin and to reconcile us unto him. And so I ask you this morning, congregation, have you looked on this? Savior, what saves the sinner is not his mourning. It is not his conviction. I've met so many people in my ministry, especially in my first congregation, oh who knew themselves to be sinners. And they could weep buckets over their sinfulness before God, but that's not what saves. What saves is faith. In Jesus Christ it's looking upon Christ and the tears will come but what saves the sinner is looking upon Christ have you looked upon Christ beloved have you seen in him all that you need in order to be saved and to be reconciled to God or maybe somebody says well I I know I must do this and I see it in the text, but but I can't. I cannot mourn either. I'm spiritually dead. I can do nothing. That's absolutely true. You can do nothing. But listen, what we cannot do and even will not do in and of ourselves, God promises to do. You notice our text here begins with the word I will this is God speaking we cannot look upon him whom we have pierced we cannot mourn over him we will not do it that's how hard our heart is but what we cannot do God will do he will pour out his spirit of grace and supplication upon us and when he does then we will look upon him whom we have pierced and we will mourn and so we may go to him as dead as we are and say oh God you know my heart you know how cold and how insensitive I am to the things of God you know that I don't mourn over Christ over my sin and what it's done to Christ the way that it should, the way that I should. But Lord, this is why I need the Spirit of God pour out your Spirit of grace and supplication upon me that I might do as the text describes here, that I might look upon him whom I have pierced and mourn because of what I have done to put him there. And so these people in our texts they mourned by the grace of the spirit of supplication and grace that was poured out upon them. But now, what is the object of their mourning? That brings us to our third point. The people in our text mourned, our text says, because of the one who was pierced. We read in verse 10, then they will look on me whom they pierce. Now, as I said earlier, this is obviously a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who is pierced, and we know that from at least two passages in the New Testament. In John 19, verse 37, we read there that six hours after Jesus was on the cross, when the soldiers saw that he was already dead, rather than break his legs, one of the Roman soldiers took a spear and jammed it up into the side of the Lord Jesus Christ, and John says, out of his side, came blood and water. And then John says this, For these things were done that the Scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another Scripture says, and here it comes, They shall look on him whom they pierced. This is a reference to Zechariah 12, verse 10. And then if we go to the last book of the Bible, the last book of the New Testament, Revelation 1, verse 7, John says concerning Christ, Behold, He is coming with clouds, and every eye will see Him, even they who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of Him. And so it's clear from both of these verses that the one who is pierced is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the question is, and it's a somewhat controversial question, when did this happen? When was this prophecy fulfilled? Now, we might say that the prophecy was fulfilled when the Roman soldier plunged his spear into the side of the Lord Jesus Christ. But, both Zechariah 12, verse 10, our text, and Revelation 1, verse 7, uses the plural pronoun they, not he, or him, but they and them. They shall look on me whom they pierce. So who's the they? Well, there are some commentators who will argue quite strongly that this is a reference to, the, to ethnic Jews, to actual Jewish people. And in their view, Zechariah here is speaking about a period just prior to the second coming of Christ during the so-called Millennium, when there will be a mass conversion of the Jewish people. And during this period of time, it is claimed the Jews will finally realize that Jesus was who he said he was, that he is the promised Messiah of God, and that they were wrong in crucifying him. And when they come to that realization, then they will mourn, and they will turn to the Lord, and there will be this mass conversion of the Jewish people. Now, I am uncertain whether there will, in fact, be a mass conversion of the Jewish people prior to the return of Christ, and there are many good reasons why I think that. I don't have time to go into that today, just as there are many good reasons for the other side as well, and I fully acknowledge that. Let me just say this. I really hope there will be I really hope there will be a mass conversion of the Jewish people before Christ comes again, just as I hope there will be a mass conversion of any people on the planet before Christ comes again. But having said that, there is, I think, a better way to interpret this part of our text. Most likely, what Zechariah is writing about here has already been fulfilled, at least to some extent. There's been an initial fulfillment of these words. You say, when was it fulfilled? Well, it was fulfilled initially on the day of Pentecost. There we read in Acts chapter 2 how on the day of Pentecost, Peter preached the sermon before the Jews. And uh, he told the Jews that Jesus of Nazareth was the promised Messiah and that they with wicked hands had crucified and put to death. And then we read... That when Peter finished this sermon, in particular when he he accused the Jews of crucifying the Son of God, they were pricked in their heart, it says, and they cried, men and brethren, what shall we do? And then Peter said to them, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins, and you shall be saved. And some 3,000 of them were. And so there was an initial fulfillment of this on the day of Pentecost. They, these Jews in the day of Pentecost, they looked upon Him whom they pierced. And they mourned. And they were saved as a result. But it's continuing to be fulfilled, isn't it? Every time that a sinner comes to faith in Christ, every time a believer is confronted with the cross of Christ and is made to look upon that cross and to see Him who is hanging there and bleeding and dying for sinners, It's the same reaction. When it's applied to the heart by the Holy Spirit, they will mourn because of Him. And they will be converted. Now who was it who pierced the Lord Jesus Christ, if that's the case? Who was it then who pierced the Lord Jesus? Who was it who nailed Him to the cross? Who was it who condemned Him to death and caused Him so much pain and suffering and humiliation. Who was it? it wasn't just the Jewish Sanhedrin. It wasn't just Pontius Pilate. It wasn't just the Roman soldiers. It was us. It was you. It was me. We all pierced him. We all nailed him to the cross. We all caused him Such pain and suffering. And this is why still today the people of God, when they think about Christ and they think about his sufferings on the cross, what's their reaction? They mourn because they know it was my sins that put him there. My sins. And when sinners, by the uncovering work of the Holy Spirit, come to behold Christ On the cross is the only sacrifice for sin. They too come to the same realization. It was my sins that put him there. And they mourn because of it. Have you ever mourned upon seeing the Lord Jesus Christ hanging on the cross, pierced for sinners? You say, well, I wasn't there. That happened 2,000 years ago. I never saw Jesus being pierced, They never saw Jesus hanging on the cross, and that's true, of course. But listen, every time the gospel is preached, every time we hear about the suffering, the death of Christ for sinners, it's as though we were right there. Sitting at the foot of the cross, looking up, beholding Him whom we have pierced. The Apostle Paul says as much in Galatians 3, verse 1. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 1. He asks there the foolish Galatians. He says, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Listen carefully now. Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. That's an amazing statement. How was Jesus Christ clearly set before them as crucified? They weren't there. Well, it was through the preaching of the gospel. As Paul preached to them the cross of Jesus Christ, it was like they were right there. And every time the Lord's Supper is celebrated and we see the wine being poured out and the bread being broken, it's like we're right there. We see the Lord Jesus. We look upon Him whom we have pierced. And now the question is, what is our response to this? Maybe some of us here have become cold and insensitive to these things. You've heard it. I said it in my introduction. You've heard it so many times before. It doesn't leave an impression on you. You can listen to a sermon like this and you can go home like you were listening to the weatherman giving the weather forecast. Totally unaffected. Unchanged. Insensitive. To what you've heard. That can happen, and that's a very sad thing when that is the condition of our hearts. How hard our heart must be. We can, we can become so used to hearing about the suffering and death of the Lord Jesus Christ that it doesn't affect us anymore. We go home and we have our cup of coffee and our piece of cake and we go on and we come back to the second service and it's like, yeah, okay, heard it. What's next? Something wrong something wrong and it should impel it should instill within us a plea lord pour out your spirit of grace and supplication in my heart the heart of my children my wife my family my congregation that we may look upon him whom we have pierced and that we might not be insensitive to what we see and what we know, but that we might mourn because of it. Because, you know, those who remain insensitive to these things, those who, who do not mourn today because of what Christ has done, they will mourn one day. And he comes again on the clouds of heaven. And then Jesus says, you will call upon the hills and the rocks to cover you, to hide you, anything but to not to appear under the holy gaze of the King of kings and the Lord of lords who's coming in judgment. We need to learn to mourn again, congregation. And if you are one of those mourning ones, let me just say this. You're blessed. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 4, Blessed are they who mourn, who mourn. Why are they blessed? He tells us, for they shall be comforted. They are blessed not because they mourn. They're blessed because they shall be comforted. And when will that happen? It will happen the moment they're converted to Christ. And The burden of sin is lifted off of their soul and they realize the slate's been wiped clean and God has justified them. He's declared them not guilty in the sight of God and all their sins are washed away for the sake of Jesus Christ, his son. Oh, what comfort that brings to the burdened sinner. But ultimately they shall be comforted in glory when God, as John says in Revelation, when God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more sin, there will be no more sin, no more effects of sin, no more consequences of sin. It will be eradicated once and for all and then we shall look upon him whom we have pierced, upon the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the world, but then we will not mourn. No, then we will rejoice for we will see him not hanging on a cross bleeding and dying for sinners but seated at the right hand of his Father as the victorious King of kings and Lord of lords to whom has been given all power and all authority in heaven and on earth and every knee shall bow before him and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God The Father. And we who have looked upon him whom we have pierced and mourned shall then look upon him with joy, and we shall live and reign with him forever and ever. Amen.